All right, let's face it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably trying to survive and thrive in a world that hates you, hates your values, and just wants you to bend the knee or go away. In a world gone mad, the question on your mind is, what can I do? How can I provide for my family in case of more mandates? Protect my kids from the woke mind virus? What about economic instability? If these questions have been weighing you down, I've got the answer. Tom's School of Life. Tom Woods is a New York Times bestselling author, libertarian podcaster with over 2,000 episodes, and father of five. Tom's School of Life offers practical liberty solutions for the problems that keep us up at night. When you join, you'll be met with a robust community of like-minded people all working towards solutions rather than complaining about the problems. Tom hosts two webinars each month taught by subject matter experts in areas we really need help with, like starting an online or offline business, homeschooling, how to avoid the sick care system, personal finance, real estate investing, or how to negotiate taught by actual FBI hostage negotiators. But the way we make these ideas a reality is through the accountability groups. These are the heart of the program. In these, you get to work towards and workshop your dreams, goals, and aspirations. It could be a weight loss goal or starting your side hustle so you can finally leave your soul-sucking corporate job. There's also a jobs board, a forum, in-person meetups, and all the tools you'll need to survive and thrive in a world that hates you. I've been a member since its inception, and I've found the knowledge and network to be invaluable. So if you've been losing sleep, wondering how you're going to get by when they inevitably try and pull another fast one on us, don't wait. Join us today. Go to libertyalliancenetwork.com forward slash T-S-O-L. That's libertyalliancenetwork.com forward slash T-S-O-L for Tom School of Life. And join me and other action takers. See you in there. everybody. I just wanted to jump on here real quick and apologize in advance um, for the audio quality on this podcast. Um, my, the office that I normally record in is in uh, disarray right now. And so I had to move my recording room to a different area of the house. And then when I was trying to set it up, I realized that my microphone just, I can't get it configured right to you know, it just wasn't going to work. So um, I had to use the uh, webcam microphone, which is only slightly better than the built-in computer microphone. Um, so that's why it doesn't sound as sharp and crisp as it maybe normally does. Um, I still need to upgrade my microphone. I'm going to put that on my to-do list. But for today, I do apologize. Um, but the content is well, well, well worth listening to. So please don't let that deter you from listening to the whole thing to the very, 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 very end, because the end is the most powerful part. Um, and you definitely want to stay for that. So um, regardless, please ignore the bad audio, but it will be more than made up for by the amazing uh, chat I had with survivor Catherine Robbins. All right, let's get to it. Thanks. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Liberty Alliance Network's What Can We Do? I'm Haley Heathman. Today, I am super excited to be joined by Catherine Robbins. Catherine is a survivor. I know uh, Sound of Freedom and Human Trafficking has been uh, on the topic of conversation for several weeks now. And um, let's uh, hear from a survivor herself um, what that means. And we're going to dive into this uh, and just sort it all out. So Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I was super excited to hear that this is kind of a reboot of your podcast. So I'm honored that you would choose me to be the first person and I appreciate you. Uh, I really enjoyed meeting you um, both times, apparently. I just found out I had forgotten about the first time, but uh, you and I were uh, in a uh, place where I spoke about well, 12 days ago, right? With the other organization, Bikers Against Trafficking, which I love. So um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's see, where do we start? 
Let's start at the beginning. Tell people just the brief overview of your story and why you're here. Because it's pretty, I mean, pretty insane if you think about it. It's actually a walking miracle story. And anyone who's endured years and years and years of child trauma of any sort, right? Um, for them to be alive and functioning is an absolute miracle. In my case, I was not raised by immediate family members, um, but I had family members who had been doing criminal things with children, with drug trafficking, uh, with child pornography for a couple of generations by the time I showed up to the earth. So it was pretty well established. And I was sent to live with some people who are no longer alive, thank God. And those people were extended family members that, um, again, had been for generations doing this kind of thing. And so I started being trafficked by the time I was in diapers. I don't have any specific memory of stuff under about the age of four or five, but there are some key indicators that it starts long before that. And um, so it started when I was in diapers um, probably very early in diapers, but I was being trafficked. It's considered domestic trafficking. If the primary location that you are being trafficked from, okay, is it's not a street corner, right? Like, like selling kids on the street corner is from a family or custodial home. So I was a domestic trafficking victim and um, again, these people were involved in crime uh, at a worldwide level. They were responsible for one of the largest drug busts on American soil some decades ago and much older. They had their own landing strips. They had their own um, warehouses. They were warehousing drugs that they were trafficking all over the world. And they, again, they were trafficking child pornography pre-internet days because I'm older. So physical copies of child pornography, and I believe probably involved in weapons trafficking too. You can't traffic drugs at that level and not be involved in these other things. So I grew up um, and they openly worshiped Satan. So anything that you hear that sounds like conjecture or conspiracy or truth to you regarding Epstein Island and that temple and those underground tunnels would be something that I would have been exposed to. I'm older, so I would not have been on Epstein Island. I'm just saying everything that you could imagine that's happened to the children who were on that island or trafficked from that island, I would have endured. So I was trafficked around the U.S. and most likely the world, but I've never gone after every single abuse memory I've ever had. And sometimes knowing what location you're in during a, a memory is hard to capture. But given the worldwide trafficking they were doing with other things, it's very likely that I was trafficked around the world definitely throughout varying locations in the U.S. I remember being able to get off a plane, a train out of an automobile anywhere in the U.S. and being instantly met by people doing the same thing in a different location. So <clears throat> my young life until almost the age of 16 was me being dragged out of my bed in the middle of the night because they're witching hours between midnight and 5 a.m. This is when it's interesting because if you're a Christian, um, the Jewish people believe that God himself walks the earth during a portion of those hours. So like between 3 and 6 a.m. But during 12, between 12 and 5 a.m. is when a lot of this uh, organized crime trafficking of children uh, rooted in an open worship of Satan will happen. Wow. So during the day, I was being 
I was being beaten and abused terribly. I would go to school with large belt marks across my legs, welts from tree branches, just there were all kinds of very obvious signs that I was being physically abused. And those things I remembered. Um, But throughout much of my childhood, I had what's considered a dissociative amnesia. So I did not have the kind of MK Ultra trauma-based mind control dissociation of my personality. I just had an amnesia. So by the time I would wake up in the morning, I would not remember what happened the night before. And I believe some of that was drug-induced. They definitely use intravenous drugs continually. So I believe some of the amnesia was drug-induced. I think Yeah. Anyway, so during the day, I didn't remember what was happening at night. I was a very thin, very sickly kid with a lot of signs of abuse. And I was in and out of local churches and public school and doctor's offices where no one ever intervened. Wow. I was going to ask that. So did you have anything resembling a normal childhood? Um, You said you went to school where you moved around a lot. Did you have friends? Um, Can you tell me about that? Uh, There was a period of time where I was in the same place for a really, really long time here in the United States. I did go to school. Um, I had friends. And um, let me fast forward to when I actually got the first, when I escaped. So all of this, let me backtrack. Sorry. <laughs> so, so all this stuff is happening and I am being, um, raped and gang raped and repeatedly abused. I know it's hard material, but I have to use the right language. We have to stop using the term molest. Mm-hmm. And we, and quite frankly, I think, in my opinion, and a lot of survivors share this opinion, um, the term human sex trafficking is offensive. Um, this is not the trafficking of sex. Sex is by choice. This is rape trafficking. We're trafficking, rape is a crime. Sex is not a crime. So, um, and with all due respect to anybody doing this or, or talking about even their backgrounds, there's no good language for any of it. So that was happening to me sometimes hundreds of times a month. Um, it was, it was massive. And so, um, I would be hospitalized from time to time. I mean, I just was chronically very sick. There were so many signs. So I get to be um, the later part of my 15th year. So it's prior to turning 16. And I had uh, been a babysitter for a young couple. They were probably in their 30s. That's my guess. And they had one child. And this family. I'm going to, I'm going to say the man's name is Danny. So Danny's family was well known in our area. There were a bunch of brothers and a lot of them were married and they owned local businesses and stuff. And they were known as the family that you didn't mess with. They carried guns, they drank, they smoked, they were, they were just considered, I don't know, almost like, like, the untouchable like biker guys, but they were wonderful people. And this family treated me super, super well. So one day he calls on a landline phone and he says, I want you to come over immediately because we want to talk to you. And so I went over there and uh, he had a local business and one of the police officers from the town I was in had visited him. And he said, I got a visit from a police officer today. And I'm about to say something and you have to really consider not only the miracle, but the audacity of this being said to a 15 year old. And he said to me, the police officer said, if you don't get her out of there, they're going to kill her. And he stopped talking. And I remember sitting on his couch with his wife sitting next to me. And I just, something washed over me. And I thought, he's right. They're going to kill me. So what's also miraculous about that is that in my case, and in the case of every survivor I've ever known, every single one of them, bar none, uh, there are 
corrupt law enforcement, corrupt feds, corrupt teachers, corrupt lawyers, corrupt doctors, corrupt hospital systems. Those were all part of what I grew up in. And when I use, when I say those things, I don't mean all. I never mean all. I just mean, and the world has been able to see this in recent years, that there can be corruption inside of agencies and organizations that we trust to protect us. But this man, he somehow knew that I was being targeted to have my life taken out. So um, they, Danny said, uh, here's the key to the warehouse. Go get all your stuff, pack it, put it in the warehouse and hit the road. And there were reasons why I couldn't stay with them. It wouldn't have been safe for me and it was too close and all that kind of stuff. So I literally, within an hour of getting a phone call, my bags were packed. I was gone. I hit the roads and I was a runaway for two years while I finished high school. Wow. Wow. And during those two years, where did you stay? Where did you go? Well, (laughs) well, um, back then I went to the church that I had grown up in where traffickers raised their families (laughs) Mm -hmm. and commit atrocities in their basements at night. Mm And I asked them for help and they turned me down and I went to a lot of people for help. And there were times when friends would let me spend the night with them and maybe a couple nights and then their parents would send me off knowing I was homeless. And it was very confusing to me as a child, but as an adult who's walked through the healing process, it's clear that they were afraid. Like, somebody had to know, like, we can't house this person. And there's also a chance that threats were being made. Don't house her or, and I do know that um, the people who raised me have done that. They did it they did it to me while I was a runaway. So I went for help. So most of the time I spent the night walking the streets, hiding under cars, hiding behind bushes, trying not to get accessed. And uh, I think the longest period of time I was with another family was maybe three months. And it was at the very tail end of it before I went off to college. There was a point at which I actually showed up at the police station and asked them to put me in foster care and they refused and walked me out the front door. Wow. As Uh, a run, knowing I was a runaway. Yeah. So if, you know, say like one of those families you approached and um, asked for help, I mean, if somebody presently had that happen to them, what would you say they should do? Should they call the cops? Should they, who should they call? What would you suggest somebody in that a family that sees or knows, or is a, you know, has Catherine Robbins show up on their doorstep asking for help? What would, what would you have them do? If I suspected there were abuses, I would not call um, child protective services and I would not call a local police or law enforcement person unless I had a relationship with them and had vetted them and knew that I could trust an intervention to take place. Um, I have heard several other people who are advocates say that the best solution right now is not one of the 800 numbers either. Many of the 800 numbers um, are actually not proactive. So the one for trafficking, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a lot of times they're database centric and they're really not interventions. So I do hear people often say that the best phone call is the federal marshal's office. For me, that's not who I would call. For me personally, I would contact the Association for the Recovery of Children. It's uh, ARC. It's called ARC. I just did a training with them in another state, and they have the longest running child rescue nonprofit in the United States. And they have vetted people that they trust throughout the United States. And so if somebody showed up to my door, my first phone call would be to the leaders of ARC. And I would say, who do you know in the state of Florida that you trust that we can do something proactive to help this person? That's Mm -hmm. me. 
Yeah. And that's, that's good advice. Have you know, this echoes to me, have you ever seen the movie Rosemary's baby? I have that. I would have never watched that kind of stuff because it's not entertainment for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, like I, I, I've only seen it once, so I don't have a good memory of it, but it's, it's, it's by Roman Polanski. Isn't that Roman? He's a famous infamous. He had some, he had to flee the U S because he, yep. uh, you know, was involved with some kids and that movie seemed more, um, prescriptive than, you know, uh, nonfiction and fantasy, but you know, it's basically like this woman whose upstairs neighbors were involved in some nefarious stuff and they were recruiting her husband and the satanic rituals and everything and, um, you know, drugging her basically too. So she would, didn't yeah. know what was going on and they yeah. you know, raped her. And then the, she had Satan's rape baby basically. But at one point she tried to escape and she went to a doctor's office and she was trying to tell them the doctor's office, you know, um, about all the awful things that had been happening. She knew. And then the, she, they, the, he said, they're there, you know, took care of her, let her, let her rest. And when she woke up, the person he had called was her handlers that, uh, you know, so she, they sent her right back in. And uh, it's like basically saying there is no escape. Everybody's in on it and yeah. you're not getting out. That's true. Um, as these these very well organized uh, entities are very well organized and they're very well connected, and so escaping is literally a miracle. They would rather uh, you lose your life than get out because there's always a chance that you're going to tell, even despite any programming or threats that they make. And in my case, um, my primary physician growing up was one of their hired hands. He was one of their hired hands. As a matter of fact, during the time that I was a runaway, I went to him because I was having medical issues and the Dean of girls at my school, um, did a complete 180 and she went from being an enemy to a champion for me. Um, and so I think she probably took me there knowing he was the doctor on record. And he said, you look exhausted, you're malnourished. Um, I'm going to put you in the hospital under the guise of you needing having a nervous breakdown and you're going to be well fed and you're going to get to rest. And in my mind, I'm thinking safety, safety, a bed and food, right? So I was a runaway. So I, that sounded like a safe option. While I was in there, that man went to people who had custody of me and the people who raised me never had legal custody of me. So this doctor went to people who had custody, still had custodial rights and attempted to have me put into a permanent state mental health facility for which I would have never escaped. Mm -hmm. They would have drugged me senseless and I would have died in there. And so they're just, there was a series of miracles that happened over the course of the couple years where I was a runaway. It didn't shield me from being accessed or hurt. And at one point something happened where I was nearly killed. Uh, so it didn't shield me from all of that, but there were miracles in the middle of it where it was very clear that God was making a way for me to escape. But yeah, the doctors, the local hospitals, they were all involved, yeah. all of them. And you know what's funny, again, kind of just relating to this to the real world and letting people know how how pervasive this is, but it reminds me of, again, we talk about the mind control and what's happening in the entertainment industry. But if you see like these celebrities that have a mental breakdown and they get sent to Cedar Sinai medical history, you know, or they sent, sent to rehab, yep. that's re they're reprogramming them. That's not rehab. That's re-traumatizing them, reprogramming them and, you know, basically sending them back into the lion's den and getting them, whipping them back into shape so that they don't fracture basically. And yeah, it's it's my personal opinion that although there are probably 20% of the therapeutic community that is wonderful and worth their weight in gold, 
I would say that in my guess and my opinion that I can't factually back up is that probably 80% of them are not really good at what they do. And of that 80%, I actually think there's probably at least a fourth of them or more that are actually nefarious plants. And they're inside the system uh, to make sure that victims who come forward of any type of abuse are not only re-traumatized, but they're tracked. I actually believe that the therapeutic community, some of them, probably track victims, put them on drugs, that kind of stuff to keep them quiet. And uh, I think there's actually a concerted effort. We have to understand that there's nobody involved in this level of trafficking of anything uh, that can't pay off somebody, plant somebody, train somebody in every arena of culture that would help to support their continued crimes while preventing victims from actually becoming whole and healthy enough to talk about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, going, continuing on the celebrity thing, you think of like Kanye West, he's one of the more out there ones where it's like, what's going on with Kanye? Because, and he's even mentioned like having handlers and everything talking about his handlers. And so even if like, he's not the one voluntarily trying to say, I need help, even if they're handlers, well, their handlers are in on it. So they're the ones directing them to the hospitals or rehab places where they know they have people in their circles that are again, gonna play the game, keep the game going. Yeah. He, Kanye West, of course, I don't know him personally, and I don't watch a lot of what he does, but I've seen enough over the last few years to believe that he shows significant signs of dissociative disorder um, on, on some degree of the spectrum. You know, you'll hear him speak one way one time and be very transparent about what he thinks is going on. And then the next time it, it's, it's something different. And I've worked with enough victims over the course of the last few decades to know when that programming, that disassociation is coming to a head. So it's, it's like, um, it's like someone who has repressed memories. There's a point at which the brain actually decides that it's going to remember consciously and move that out of the subconscious into the into the conscious and it's the same for dissociation i see a lot of people get to a certain age or get into a safe relationship or get near somebody who has a healing gift that can walk through life with them and their dissociation will just start to implode And he looks like that to me. And my prayer is that him and anyone else Mm -hmm. that that may be the case for would, um, would get to the right people in place to get healed. Well, there's some, something about the programming that like, it only lasts so long. And then that's why they talk about like the, the, in Hollywood there, there's that famous uh, 27 club where there are a lot of celebrities that um, seem, seem to demise at around 27. They, kill themselves or overdose or something, you know, um, right around 27. Um, and that's probably not by accident, um, you know, in some ways. And, and I don't, I don't, you know, obviously I don't know what's happening with them, but I would say that I personally believe just from very limited experience that, um, that about the time you hit 30 and early 30s, there's a strong likelihood that this stuff is going to start to dismantle in your life and create chaos. Um, And the dismantling and the chaos of it should be a sign to us to get involved and help those people. I know people look at people like Kanye West and think, oh, he's crazy. No, actually, he's probably got a system, a mental um, system, Britney Spears. Yeah, that is just wanting to unravel and they need help, right? It Mm -hmm. it doesn't make them bad or crazy. It doesn't make any of that. It's just that their brain is trying to tell them it's time to unravel so we can get some intervention. And unfortunately, we don't have enough intervention for people who are dissociative and trying to get well. 
Mm -hmm. So um, finally, you know, just let's tie tie a bow on your story a little bit. So you were on the streets for a couple of years. You, um, they were still keeping tabs on you, though. They still and um, like, were they actively trying to get you back, or were they just kind of like observing from afar? Were they plotting? Did you have to run away? Like, I mean, I feel like it's the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. So how did you finally extricate yourself from your position? Well, I'm not sure I have hard, fast answer for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. It'll be supposition based on, you know, my experience, but that doesn't mean I I don't think like a sociopath. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. know. I will say that um, there were attempts to kill me during the two years that uh, I was homeless. And then I went away to college uh, in a completely different place and had some relative safety there. And I would say up to the age of about maybe 20 now, it may, so between the years of 28 and 30, uh, there was that I know of, the last major attempt to get to me and to threaten me. And it was in a completely different state, a completely different city. And somebody um, cornered me in an alleyway in a big city and basically let me know that they could access me anytime, anywhere. Wow. But... I will say this, there's a bit of a catch 22 about going public. It can be super risky uh, in terms of physical safety. And I'm not a whistleblower. I'm not here to name names and I'm not, I'm here to tell my story for the purpose of wanting to build curriculum. I want to encourage survivors. I want to teach people how to walk with survivors and I want them to know that they can get whole. So I'm not a whistleblower, but they, it's risky physically to go public, but I'm a lot older and I've gone public in the past. And, and sometimes public is just telling somebody in your family, this is what happened. That's what I mean by going public. You're no longer keeping it a secret. And once you start doing that, it can feel very unsafe and it can feel risky. And emotionally, there's a big cost for doing that, which is why I don't personally believe that survivors should be doing this unless they've been through years of counseling. I'm actually completely opposed to nonprofits using survivors of any type of child abuse to get donations for their nonprofit, to be their poster person for whatever they're in. Uh, I, I think it's a form of prostituting uh, victims that aren't ready. So it's risky. It's very, very risky. But there comes a point when if you keep saying your truth to enough people or, and not coming off of that banner of truth, um, they will, they will, they'll back away from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, what about, um, can you tell me like the, to your knowledge, who's doing the trafficking, um, for the most part is you were kind of part of a, a ring, uh, or your family was, um, but who is getting trafficked and who are their primary customers? Is it anybody? Is it government officials? Is it wealthy people? Is it just your average Joe? Can you tell me more about that? I don't, I don't have a hard and fast answer for that either. I would say it's anybody. Um, but these organizations and, and when, when we talk about family, these were distant family members. These were not my parents. It was, it was not, it was not that, but they're, the way children get into being trafficked in some of these, in these crime rings. Okay. A lot of times they're born into families for the specific purpose of being trafficked because the family's been involved in it forever. So that's one. It's just generational. It's what they do. It's expected. Children are allowed to escape. They're a commodity. Um, There are also times when, um, 
a lot of, and we've seen this with the story of Epstein Island, where there's blackmail and coercion. I happen to believe that a lot of blackmail, a lot of coercion takes place to uh, get access to people in organizations, the family court system, law enforcement. I think that there's a lot of blackmail that happens. I think people find themselves... um, being blackmailed into turning a blind eye to what's happening, not getting involved in actually rescuing when that needs to take place. And you have to remember these, these worldwide traffickers, there's nothing sacred to them. They don't have a conscience. So it's very easy for them to get near someone with a conscience and get them drunk or drugged like supposedly they were doing on Epstein Island and get pictures of them doing something they may or may not have actually done. And from that moment on, they own that person. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different ways where people get involved in it. Um, But it's definitely in every aspect of society. It's in churches. There are churches that have been built for the sole purpose of trafficking children. There are churches that are disguised as non-denominational, denominational, denominational, God-loving churches that are worshiping Satan and, and harvesting organs of children. I mean, this just, it's everywhere. Schools can be involved. Churches can be involved. And again, I don't ever want to say all right. Mm -hmm. It's just that if you're going to infiltrate uh, something for the purpose of accessing a child that you can make money off trafficking. Well, where are you going to go? The church isn't off limits to that. You're going to go where you have access. Schools aren't off limits to that. Daycares aren't off limits to that. Like there's just no place that's, uh, and you know, child protective services, I don't want to call them an entire corrupt organization. I'm just saying that people can be assigned to come into these organizations who aren't there with the right motive. They're there to protect criminals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important to remember. And it should, it sounds like something that should be, um, common sense, but it's not, but predators put them in place where they have put themselves in place where they have access to their victims. So they are your, unfortunately, they are your trusted members of um, the community. And in fact, I think I saw like a montage recently where they um, showed like um, these newspaper headlines of all these teachers of the year who wound up being pedos. Um, so of course the teachers of the year are the ones who are most enthusiastic and who connect the best with their kids and their students love them. Well, ooh la la, turns out that, yeah, they connected really well with those kids too well. Well, and let's think, you know, we can talk about the Rachel Dellenhollander thing, mm-hmm. you know, with the gymnastics coach. I don't even remember his name. Who Larry Nasser raped hundreds and hundreds of gymnasts. And then I, um, there's a young lady, Rachel, I cannot remember her last name right now. I'm about to meet her when I go to Michigan. Um, she has an amazing story of how, um, how God has healed her from at the age of nine being trafficked by her softball coach. Yeah. I mean, it's awful. And is this always been so problematic? Has it gotten worse? Or are we just hearing more about it because of the internet or... I mean, I know it's obviously always been a problem, but um, is it getting worse, not better? Well, the human trafficking numbers are not decreasing, and we have more awareness campaigns and nonprofits than we've ever had in history. We have more training to law enforcement. We have a lot more in terms of awareness and training, and those numbers are still increasing. I think, I think. To answer your question, it's all the above. I think that we have a bigger population and therefore just by numbers, there's more of it happening. I also think that a lot of us out of ignorance sometimes have closed our eyes 
to the evil that can be right in front of us. We don't want to believe it. And I have people ask me when I speak, they say, Catherine, why don't people want to believe it? Why do they reject the message? Why won't they show up to see Sound of Freedom or other things where they would find out more? And I tell them, and it's a biblical principle too, if you're a Christian, but I tell them that once we are given truth, we are then responsible for stewarding that truth. And that actually means that something in our life is going to need to change to steward the truth we've been given. So if you are being told as a parent that softball coaches and churches and stuff can be places, can be places where you should not automatically trust every single person, then that means you're going to have to parent differently. And it requires more effort. It requires a change in your belief system. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They don't. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's put us in a a catch-22 where we're mad that this stuff is happening, but most of us are still not embracing the stewardship of raising our children much more protectively. Yeah. So what are the greatest dangers then for parents with children? Um, I mean, obviously we know online, is it more online? Is it more in person from, yeah, those super coaches and those teachers or your church leaders or whatever, or is it online or does it vary? Or, I mean, I know it's both, but what would you caution against and how would you advise parents? Good question. Um, I want to say this about statistics. One of the reasons why, and you saw me speak like 12 days ago, one of the reasons why I don't stand up and talk a lot about the statistics is not that I don't think they're impactful. It's that they're not completely reliable. So a lot of the statistics are based on reporting. You'll hear different statistics based on different reporting agencies. And I will say that in my opinion, um, most of the statistics are probably low-balled. So I actually think that they're probably higher. But there's a statistic out there that suggests that 85% of under 18 trafficking that's initiated here in the United States is initiated on online apps and websites. Mm -hmm. And see... I'm going to give you a story. I did a podcast two weeks ago, I think. And at that podcast, um, I was with a, a Christian school administrator, and he told a story about a young woman in their school who um, somebody, a predator, was initiating contact with her to the point through an app to the point where she was going to meet him in person. So I'm guessing it was a middle or high school girl. And they, the, the rumor of that got to the administrators. So the administrators get a hold of her, her phone. They call her parents in and they tell her parent, this is happening through our app. This is what was supposed to happen. You need to remove all the apps and take her phone away. So the parents did that. And a week later, the child comes back to school with her phone and all the apps rebooted on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it was, it was very short lived. Mm-hmm. And, and the parents had proof that a, an adult predator, suspected predator, was trying to access their daughter outside of their home. And it didn't change anything about the way they parented her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you have? I mean, you know, the problem is, is what struck me when I did see you 12 days ago and you were there with the Bikers Against Trafficking Um, And one of the awful things, one of the awful things is, hey, we all know um, that this is a huge problem, but Huck, who was the biker against trafficking, he said that only like 1% of these predators are convicted. So um, this is another statistic that varies, but it's very shocking. Um, I'll tell a personal story. I was living in another state and, you know, married and had um, just was walking down the street with a neighbor and she says, do you know there's a registered pedophile who lives in that house over there? And I said, I, I didn't. And I, I did not have a, you know, reaction to it. And she said, 
aren't you worried? And I said, no. And she said, why? And I said, which would you rather have, the devil you know or the devil you don't know? Because the statistic, which varies, is that, um, and gosh, this was pro- this is probably a 10-year-old statistic, so it may be higher now. The average child predator will rape, molest, sodomize 117 different children before they are ever arrested the first time. God, that's awful. And here's what I tell, here's what I tell parents when I have a chance to, and it's the way we have to think about it this way, not to instill fear, but to walk in wisdom around protecting our children. They're a gift. You know, children are a gift and we are to steward their protection. So um, let's go back to statistics that aren't totally reliable. So right now the statistic is that one in six boys under the age of 18 is sexually harmed criminally sexually harmed one in four girls Mm. one in six boys one in four girls under the age of 18 now both of those numbers are actually about to change it's going to be one in five and one in three it's very close right now so let's take the average of one in six and one in four okay that's basically one in every four let, let, let's say it's 25% of, of the population. I tell parents, go stand on your front door, on your front doorstep outside, and I want you to count the houses across the street. One, two, three, predator. One, two, three, predator. One in every four houses in your neighborhood statistically a child or more than one child is being criminally harmed. Shocking, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's an offensive thought. Yeah. And you know what? I guess it's not, I I mean, now that you say that and it's, um, I have somebody in my extended family um, that I don't talk to, um, especially not anymore, but um, who, was not good to his own daughter and uh, you know, but nothing ever happened to him. As far as we know, she was his only victim. I don't know. Um, not likely. Right. Supposedly, not likely. supposedly he's a Christian and a reformed man now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't talk to him, but um, yeah. So I guess, I mean, now that you're saying that, yeah, it hits close to home. And of course nothing yeah. happened to him. Well, you you know what would prove his reformation to me? What? Um, Going to the police station and admitting that he committed crimes against children and allowing himself to be arrested and prosecuted. That's reformation. Mm -hmm. What he did is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Criminal bullshit. Right. Yeah. And I didn't forgive him, but I mean, I was never close to him anyway. So, I mean, but I'm like, I'm not talking to you. I'm not, and we're not a close family. And I've, I've only seen him even before all this happened. I only saw him a few times in my life, but you know, just that brings it up. Like, well, how common it is. It's in my own family. It's in my own family, not close, not close to me, but wow. You know, like, so yeah, you think about your neighborhood. I live in a nice HOA neighborhood, but, um, so um, I do want to transition. I know that Sound of Freedom is all the rage right now. And I know yes. you said you, you haven't seen it because you don't have to. Uh, you lived it. <laughs> um, but can you just give me some general thoughts on the movie and at the impact that it's been having and whether you think it's been good or bad sure. or net positive or net negative for sure. what's, you know, trafficking? I would... Um, I have not seen it and I won't see it. I don't, I do not gratuitously watch uh, violent movies, especially around trafficking, because I don't need the awareness campaign. I lived it. But that doesn't mean I'm not in support of it. It just means that I, I know my trauma well enough to know that I just, <laughs> there's no need for it whatsoever. Um, I will say that the response that we're seeing in the public 
is favorable. I see people coming out of the movie and they're very angry. They're very emotional. They seem very emotionally driven after seeing the movie. And it's becoming obviously a worldwide conversation that people are having. I think that's a good thing because from what I know of the material of this movie, which I do know the basic premise of the movie is um, this movie gives the real life look at just how dark and nefarious trafficking is. You know, it's one thing to have a head knowledge that, oh, somewhere some child is being taken by a person and being trafficked. And we'll tell our brain being trafficked, but we won't let our mind go to exactly what that means and the picture of what's happening. So there's kind of a disconnect for us sometimes. And it's my understanding that the movie um, is impacting people in a way that is causing them to think, oh my God, this is dark and actually really horrible. And so I feel like it is, it's um, bringing a, a deeper awareness I think deeper is the term I want to use, a deeper awareness. And that's good. I think that we need to know that. And doing that is going to open up conversations. It's going to give survivors a chance to talk about uh, to talk about their stories in ways that you would not have been able to do six years ago. Six years ago, people still thought most trafficking happened in another country. I will say that to my understanding, the downside of the movie is, and a lot of nonprofits are blogging and writing and doing videos about this, that they don't like that the portrait of trafficking that they give is very pigeonholed in terms of um, it's one type of trafficking where something is involved that is in another country. And unfortunately, it accounts for a teeny tiny minuscule percentage of what's really happening in the United States. So that's been the downside, but we have to remember this still is a movie. It may be based on a true story, but it's still a movie. There's going to be some artistic license to it, and they're not going to have the opportunity to talk about all kinds of trafficking. It's not a documentary. You know, it's a movie to bring awareness. So I'm very, very grateful for it. One of the things I've personally seen that's a downside to me is I have, um, you know, I have a couple hundred people on one of my social media sites and I'm watching them post things about the sound of freedom and I'm watching them discuss how mad they are and how upset they are and how they cried for hours. And you have to remember for me, I only have a couple hundred people on this social media site and most of them I've done things arm in arm with. I've done a local rally or I've been at an event somewhere. Like these are people who've met me face to face, most of them. And they know that I'm a trafficking survivor. It doesn't consume my page. Uh, it's not what I talk about. I don't live from that space, but these people know that and not one of them, not one of them, has contacted to me contacted me to say oh my god i just saw this movie and the harsh reality of what happened to you can i buy you coffee and hear your story can i find out more or i'm so sorry that happened to you like there's still a disconnect <coughs> excuse me there's still a disconnect between hearing the truth about something and making it personal. And I don't know what the solution is, but that needs to change. It needs to become personal. Yeah. And I think I'm just going to, you know, maybe defend these people a little bit, but it's like, anytime you hear some, something, um, you know, dis uh, uncomfortable, like, Oh, Hey, we're getting a divorce or I have cancer or something like, you don't know how to respond or relate to that person. And you don't necessarily know what they need to hear and what is okay and what's not. So I think people rather just don't engage because they're afraid of what to say when they do engage, or they don't know what's, what's right. What should I say? You know? And so they just don't engage at all. And so, I mean, I don't think it's, malice or just you know fakery like they're not just faking their concern it's just a genuine 
ignorance, I guess, of how to converse or how to relate to that person. Like, hey, you somebody who had a miscarriage. Oh, that's okay. You didn't like that guy anyway or whatever. Well, that's not really maybe the best thing to say. So they don't say anything at all. I mean, I guess it's kind of, do you see what I'm saying there in that regard? I can understand that. I also think some of it's fakery. Mm -hmm. I think it's a blend. And I think that one of the reasons that I'm called to speak publicly, really, in this arena is not so much to tell my story. I tell my story because it lends credence to what God's brought me through, how much healing I've been in, what is possible for other survivors, along with a wisdom around things that need to change. And culturally, one of the things that needs to change is, and we've seen this politically over the last few years, no matter what political side you're on, um, have we been able to rally together and unify in a way that makes a difference in our culture? Some of us have, some of us haven't, and we've got to get better at, we've got to get better at locking arms with people. And that means that we have to engage with their stories. We can't just, I feel like, I feel like, first of all, the best answer when somebody's going through something is basically to say, I don't have any words of wisdom that are going to fix this for you. I just want you to know I love you and I'm going to walk through it that's, with you. That's great advice. It's just advice. super simple. That's yeah. It's simple, but we're not teaching that. So I think that we need to teach each other how to treat each other. I think that we need to be more, um, I think that we need to take bigger risks to connect with humans. I feel like a lot of what's happening around trafficking, child abuse, general corruption in, in every arena of life, what's happening in the schools are all issues that I believe can be addressed, can be dealt with, can be overcome long-term if we as individuals would learn how to lock arms with people, how to be gracious, how to be vulnerable. Like if we keep putting ourselves at arm's length from people because of an issue, then we can't fix the issue. If the issue is trafficking and you want to change what's going on with human trafficking, then quit putting trafficking survivors at arm's length. Yeah. And, and I've got, I, I know we're going to get wrap up here soon, but I've got a couple more questions. Um, sure. Does it, I mean, still sort of talking about the sound of freedom, but, to, you know, generally speaking, I know you can't, I mean, this is going to be speculation, but, uh, does it boil your blood that you've got like mainstream publications like the Washington Post calling this a QAnon conspiracy? And and why do you think why do you think the one side of the political aisle by and large refuses to acknowledge this massive global fact of human trafficking that is happening? I just think that there are, I just think the media is the mockingbird media. I think that they are on assignment to detract from anything that really, really, really is the truth and happening. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out of ignorance or uh, sheer wickedness that want to believe that. And I believe it crosses every single political aisle. So um, I hesitate to say it leans heavily on one side or the other. I think it's packaged differently on different sides of the aisle. I think one side of the aisle can look very slick and polished and suited up with a red tie, and they're still raping children. Well, that's what Denny Hastert did, right? You know, he was the Republican Speaker of the House, um, you know, it's not that um, only one side is, is engaged in this. We know, it, like you said, it touches all communities, but it seems like, you know, it, it seems like why are leftists more commonly not even want to hear about it? Like, I think I, I, I this could be rumor, but I did read something like they showed a, a screening of Sound of Freedom in Congress and the Democrats, none of them went and watched it. Like they didn't even want to wow. give credence to this movie. See, that's so outside of my ability to comprehend mm -hmm. that I, I couldn't explain it if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. 
Like and that just doesn't make sense. I, I wrote an email to my email list, which if you're not on, join libertyalliancenetwork.com. Yes. Uh, that's for my audience. So my, get on my email list, libertyalliancenetwork.com and sign up. But I wrote an email um, to them not too long ago, actually talking about, I mean, I was, I've been promoting you for, you know, in my email oh. list and on my, you know, Instagram and everything. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, I made those reels and those posts and everything just basically. You did great. <laughs> Thanks. Did great. But you know, one of it, it something that I, I just put basically like the, the subject was like how common evil is. It, it sucks. It sucks to have to acknowledge we're taught that evil is, you know, a few people and they're really just, you know, few and far between, but it sucks to have to realize, and I don't know what this means. It's a spiritual question. Um, just a big spiritual question, but evil is all around us. It's like you said, it's your neighbor. One in four of you, it's your teacher, it's your policeman, it's your doctor. I mean, it is super common and it's hard to have to reckon with that, I guess. And I don't know, I don't know that there's an answer. I don't know that this is a question. It's just an observation and it's a sick one. And it makes you, I mean, it makes, it's not a feel good one, um, unfortunately. And, and I, I like to, I mean, you know, hopefully have some hope, but I guess the, you know, that the answer is we just have to do our part. You have to be the change. And that's what I try and inspire in this podcast is to get people to, you know, whatever your niche is, whatever your milieu, whatever um, is your passion. You know, for some people, it's the school boards and the school meetings. For some people, it's homeschooling. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's, you know, health freedom. But, you know, it's the time is past for people to be sitting on the sidelines or just becoming a keyboard warrior. We need to act. And uh, I, I, I gave people some um, actionable items taken directly from you um, in, and I put them out there on social media and on my uh, email list. But um, I want you, I don't want to leave without you being able to talk about your book and what you've got coming up at your, um, uh, the, the conference that you're going to be going to. So can you tell us more about those things? Okay. Well, we'll connect the link to the book on Amazon. It is called Bullied, The Ultimate Identity Theft. And it is a short read about what happened when I went pub very public the first time seven or eight years ago. And um, what I now know every single trafficking survivor I've ever known who's gone public has gone through. There was a very concerted effort to silence me through uh, bullying. And it was, it was unbelievable. So the book talks about the experience and what I learned in that experience. <laughs> I would love to learn things by reading a book sometime and not through living through an experience that I then get to teach, but um, it's got some it's got some wisdom around what to do if you or someone you love is being bullied and um, and how not to run when that's happening. That's one thing. I am given the opportunity to speak a week from Saturday on August the twelfth in Michigan at an event called Reunite America. We will make sure that you guys have the link to um, their website and um, the flyer if, if you can attach it. I am going to be speaking at an event where oftentimes survivors are not allowed or asked to these events. And uh, I don't want to make an accusation that there's some sort of wicked attempt to silence us. I don't believe that's the case. It's just that we are currently in a culture where there's so much online media and there are great people who do online media and trafficking is a hot button in terms of conversation and research. So a lot of people are um, building a life and a living doing online media and they become they have a lot of following and become somewhat of a, an expert on things like human trafficking. And so people will come to see them and they are used to sharing stages with other people like them. And often it's at the expense of a survivor getting able, being able to tell their own story. So I have been given an amazing opportunity to speak at this event. And this event is going to be highly centered around the movie, The Sound of Freedom, so much so that Tim Ballard, who started Operation Underground Railroad and is the centerpiece of that movie, and Jim Caviezel, who starred in that movie, will be there speaking, and I am being invited to 
also do a human trafficking panel with them. So it's an extraordinary opportunity. Um, we're doing a little bit of fundraising around making that trip and um, the PayPal link will be included in the podcast. If you would love to sew into that, I'd be really grateful. Don't feel any pressure around that. Um, I appreciate you, but um, it's not an expense that I can normally afford on my own. And um, right now I am not currently attached to a nonprofit and I'm hoping that changes waiting for the right door to open. So, um, and I'll, we'll make sure that you guys have some access to social media. You can find me on Instagram at Restored Grace Catherine. You can find me on TikTok at Restored Grace. You'll see that terminology across my social media because God did such a work of restoration in my life. And I believe that's one of the big reasons I'm being called to some of these platforms right now. I want people under the sound of my voice to know it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've been through. He can heal and redeem absolutely anything. And I'm living proof of it. So thank you. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that makes me tear up a little bit. Um, just to know that, you know, God's grace and mercy. And, um, I think that is the high point, you know, we talked about, you know, how pervasive evil is, but we also have to remember that, um, there is a bigger power. He is good. He is mighty. He is powerful and he is working through people like you, Catherine. And um, thank you. I can't thank you enough for your courage, thank your strength, you. your bravery, and your beauty. You're a beautiful woman inside and out. Oh, and uh, God's light radiates through you, and I can see it, and I can feel it. And uh, pleasure chatting with you. I, I appreciate your time. And I will make sure that everything you mentioned is on the show, show notes page. So go to libertyalliancenetwork.com slash what can we do, and you can find um, – our interview there and uh, you can look at all the links and resources that we mentioned on the show. So Catherine, thanks so much. Um, your story is, um, uh, wow, it's, it's a lot, but um, I'm, I appreciate you taking the time to come here and share it. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. Okay. Take care.